Section number 21 of Astounding Stories 11, November 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jason Dempsey, Highland, New York. Astounding Stories 11, November 1930, by Various. Vagabonds of Space, Chapter 5 the city of golden domes. With the Nomad cruising slowly over the surface of the peaceful satellite, Mado sampled the atmosphere through a tube which was provided for that purpose. The pressure was low, as they had expected, about twenty inches of mercury in the altitude at which they drifted, but the oxygen content was fairly high, and the impurities negligible. A strange element was somewhat in evidence, though Mado's analysis showed this to be present in but minute quantity. They opened the doors and drew their first breath of the atmosphere of Europa. "'Good air, Carr,' Mado was sniffing at one of the ports. "'A bit rare for you, but I think you'll get along with it. Temperature of forty-five degrees? That's not so bad. The strangest thing is the gravity.' This body isn't much more than two thousand miles in diameter, yet its gravity is about the same as on Venus, seven-eighths of that of Terra. Must have a huge nickel-iron core. Yes, that'll be a cinch for me, but you, you big lummox, it's the G-ray for you as long as we're here. Uh-huh. You get all the brakes, don't you? Carr laughed. He was becoming anxious to land. What sort of reception do you suppose we'll get? he said. Not bad from the tone of that last message. And here they come, Carr. Look, a dozen of them. A royal reception so far. Suddenly they were in the midst of a flock of great birds, birds that flapped their golden wings to rise, then soared and circled like the gulls of the terrestrial oceans. And these mechanical birds were fast. Carr and Mado watched in fascination as they strung out in V-formation and led the way in the direction of the setting sun. Six, seven hundred miles an hour, the nomad's indicator showed as they swung in behind these ships of Europa. They crossed a large body of water, a lake of fully five hundred miles in width. More country, then, hardly populated now, and with but few of the gleaming roadways, the sun had set, but there was scarcely any diminution of the light, for the great ball that was Jupiter reflected a brilliance of far greater intensity than that of the full moon on a clear terrestrial night. A marvelous sight the gigantic body presented, with its alternate belts of gray-blue and red and dazzling white, and it hung so low and huge in the heavens that it seemed one had but to stretch forth a hand to touch its bright surface. Another mountain range loomed close and was gone. On its far side there stretched the desolate wastes of a desert, a barren plain that extended in all directions to the horizon. Windswept it was, and menacing beneath them. Europa was not all as they had first seen it. A glimmer of brightness appeared at the horizon. The fleet was reducing speed, and soon they saw that their journey was nearly over. At the far edge of the desert the bright spot resolved itself into the outlines of a city, the city of golden domes. Cones they looked like, rather, with rounded tops and fluted walls. The mental message had conveyed the most fitting description possible without words or picture. 
The landing was over so quickly that they had but confused impressions of their reception. A great square in the heart of the city, crowded with people, swooping maneuvers of hundreds of the bird-like ships, an open space for their arrival, the platform where a committee awaited them, the king, or at least he seemed to be a king, the sea of upturned faces, staring eyes. Mado fidgeted and opened his mouth to voice a protest, but Carr nudged him into silence. The king had risen from his seat in the circle on the platform and was about to address them. There was no repetition of the telepathic means of communication. "'Welcome travelers from the inner planets,' said the king. He spoke Kos perfectly. "'Cardos, emperor of the body you call Europa, salutes you. Our scientists have recorded your thoughts with their psycho-ray apparatus, and have learned that you have a message for us, a message we fear is not pleasant. Am I correct?' Carr stared at the soft-voiced monarch of this remarkable land. It was incredible that he spoke in the universal language of the inner planets. "'Your Highness,' he replied, "'is correct. We have a message.' "'But it amazes us that you are familiar with our language.' "'That we shall explain later. Meanwhile, the message.' "'The message,' Carr said, "'is not pleasant. "'A golden sphere out in space, "'helpless in the clutches of a nameless monster, "'a vast creature of jelly-like substance, "'but possessed of enormous destructive energy.' a mental message to our vessel warning us away and bidding us to come here, to tell you of their fate. We escaped, and here we are. The face of Cardos paled. He reached for an egg-shaped crystal that reposed on the table, spoke rapidly into its shimmering depths. Hidden amplifiers carried his voice throughout the square in booming tones. It was a strange tongue he spoke, with many gutturals and sibilants. A groan came up from the assembled multitude. Cardos tossed the crystal to the table with a resigned gesture, then tottered and swayed. Instant confusion reigned in the square, and the Emperor was assisted from the platform by two of his retainers. They never saw him again. One of the counselors, a middle-aged man with graying russet hair and large gray eyes set in a perfectly smooth countenance, stepped from the platform and grasped the two adventurers as the confusion in the square increased to an uproar. "'Come,' he whispered in excellent coast. "'I'll explain all to you in the quiet of my own apartments. I am Detus, a scientist, and my home is close by.' Gently he clung to them, as the larger men forced their way between the milling groups of excited Europeans. No one gave them much attention. All seemed to be overcome with grief. A terrible disaster this loss of the golden sphere must be. They were out of the square and in one of the broad streets. The fluted sides of the up-pointed cones shone softly golden on all sides. Alike in every respect were these dwellings of the people of Europa, and strangely attractive in the light of the mother planet. Not a word was spoken when they reached the abode of their guide. They entered an elaborate hall, and were whisked upward in an automatic elevator. Didis ushered them into his apartment when they alighted. He smiled gravely at their looks of wonder as they cast eyes on the maze of apparatus before them. It was a laboratory, 
rather than a living room in which they stood. Didis led them to an adjoining room, where he bid them be seated. They exchanged wondering glances as their host paced the floor vigorously before speaking further. Friends, he finally blurted, I hope you'll excuse my emotion, but the news you brought is a terrible blow to me, as to all Europa. Carly, our prince, beloved son of Cardos, was commander of the ship you reported lost. We deeply mourn his loss. Carr and Mado waited in respectful silence while their host made effort to control his feelings. Now, he said, after a moment, I can talk. You have many questions to ask, I know. So have I. But first, I must tell you that Carly's was an expedition to your own worlds. A grave danger hangs over them, and he was sent to warn them. He has been lost. Our only spaceship capable of making the journey also is lost. Six Martian years were required to build it, so I fear the warning will never reach your people. Already the time draws near. A grave danger? asked Mado. What sort of danger? War. Utter destruction. Conquest by the most warlike and ambitious people in the solar system. Not the people of Europa? asked Carr. Indeed not. There is another inhabited satellite of Jupiter, next farthest from the mother planet. Ganymede, you call it. It is from there that these conquerors are to set forth. Many of them? inquired Mado. Two million or so. They are prepared to send an army of more than a tenth of that number on the first ex expedition. A mere handful. Carr was contemptuous. True. But they are armed with the most terrible of weapons. Your people are utterly unprepared, and, unless warned, will be driven from their cities and left in the deserts to perish of hunger and exposure. This is real danger. Something in it, Carr, if what he says is true. We've no arms nor warriors. Haven't had for two centuries. You know it as well as I do. Bah! Overnight we could have a million armed and ready to fight them off. Thetis raised his hand. "'You offend me,' he said gravely. "'I have told you this in good faith, and you reward me with disbelief and boastful talk. Your enemies are more powerful than you think, and your own people utterly defenseless against them.' Uh, "'I'm sorry,' Carr apologized. "'And I'll listen to all you have to say. Surely your prince has not given his life in vain.' He was ashamed before the scientist of Europa. A tinkling feminine voice from the next room called something in the European tongue. Didis raised his head proudly, and his frown softened at the sound of dainty footsteps. His voice was a caress as he replied. A vision of feminine loveliness stood framed in the doorway, and the visitors rose hastily from their seats. Carr gazed into the eyes of the deepest blue he had ever seen. Small in stature, though this girl of Europa was, not more than five feet tall, she had the form of a goddess and the face of an angel. He was flushing to the roots of his hair, could feel it spread. What an ass he was, anyway! Anyone would think he'd never seen a woman in all his thirty-five years. "'My daughter, Aura, gentlemen,' said Didis. The girl's eyes had widened as she looked at the huge Martian with the funny black box on his back. 
They dropped demurely when turned to those of the handsome terrestrial. Oh, she said in coase, I didn't know you had callers. Vagabonds of Space, Chapter 6 Vlor Urdin The time passed quickly in Paladar, city of the Golden Domes. Didis spent many hours in the laboratory with his two new visitors, and the fair Aura was usually at his side. She was an efficient helper to her father and a gracious hostess to the guests. The amazement of the visitors grew apace as the wonders of European science was revealed to them. They sat by the hour at the illuminated screen of the Rolden, that remarkable astronomical instrument which brought the surfaces of distant celestial bodies within a few feet of their eyes, and the sounds of the streets and the jungles to their ears. It was no longer a mystery how the language of Kos had become so familiar to these people. They learned of the origin of the races that inhabited Europa and Ganymede. Ages before it was necessary for the people of the then thickly populated Jupiter to cast about for new homes due to the cooling of the surface of that planet. Life was becoming unbearable. In those days there were two dominant races on the mother body, a gentle and peaceful people of great scientific accomplishment, and a race of savage brutes who, while very clever with their hands, were of lesser mental strength and of a quarrelsome and fighting disposition. Toward the last, the population of both main countries was reduced to but a few survivors, and the intelligent race had discovered a means of traversing space and was prepared to leave the planet for the more livable satellite, Europa. Learning of these plans, the others made a treaty of perpetual peace as a price for their passage to another satellite, Ganymede. The migration began, and the two satellites were settled by the separate bands of pioneers, and their new lives begun. The perpetual treaty had not been broken since, but the energies of the warlike descendants of those first settlers of Ganymede were expended in casting about for new fields to conquer. Through the ages they cast increasingly covetous eyes on those inner planets, Mars, Terra, and Venus. Not having the advantage of the Rolden, they knew of these bodies only what could be seen through their own crude optical instruments, and what they had learned by word of mouth from certain renegade Europans they were able to bribe. While their neighbors of the smaller satellite were engaged in peaceful pursuits, tilling the soil, and making excellent homes for themselves, the dwellers on Ganymede were fashioning instruments of warfare, and building a fleet of spaceships to carry them to their intended victims. It was a religion with them. They could think of nothing else. An unscrupulous scientist of Europa sold himself to them several generations previously, and it was this scientist who had made the plans for their space flyers, and had contrived the deadly weapons with which they were armed. He likewise taught them the language of Kos, and it was now spoken universally throughout Ganymede in anticipation of the glorious days of conquest. "'You honestly believe them able to do this?' asked Carr, still skeptical after two days of discussion. I know it as a certainty, Didis replied solemnly. It is only during the past generation we have learned of the completeness and awfulness of their preparations. Your people cannot combat their sound ray. With it they can remain outside the vision of those on the surface, and set the tall buildings of your cities in harmonic vibrations that will bring them down in ruins about the ears of the populace. There'll be nothing left for them to take if they destroy all our cities. Nowhere for them to live. I don't get it. 
only a few will be destroyed completely, to terrify the rest of the inhabitants of your worlds. Others will be depopulated by means of vibrations that will kill off the citizens without harming the cities themselves, vibrations which are capable of blanketing a large area and raising the body temperature of all living things therein to a point where death will ensue in a very few minutes. Other vibrations will paralyze all electrical equipment on the planet and make it impossible for your ships of the air to set out to give battle, even were they properly armed. "'Looks bad, Carr,' said Mado glumly. "'It does that. We've got to go back and carry the warning.' "'I fear it is too late,' said Detus. Much time will be needed in which to develop a defense, and surely it cannot be done within the three Isini before they set forth. About four of your days. They leave that soon? Carr was taken aback. Yes, with their one hundred and twenty vessels, forty to each of your three planets, seventeen hundred men to a vessel. Carr jumped to his feet. By the heat of devil's mercury! he roared. We'll go to their lousy little satellite and find a way to prevent it. Aura gazed at his flushed face with unconcealed admiration. You're crazy, exploded Mado. What can we do with the Nomad? Her D-ray can do plenty of damage. Yes, but they'd have us down before we could account for five of their vessels. It's no use, I tell you. But Carr was stubborn. We'll pay them a call anyway. I'll bet we can dope out some way of putting it over them. Are you game? Of course I'm game. I'll go anywhere you will. But it's a fool's idea just the same. Maybe so, maybe not. Anyway, let's go. Just a moment, gentlemen, Didis interposed. How about me? Carr stared at him and saw that his eyes shone with excitement. Why, I'd believe you'd like to go with us, he exclaimed admiringly. I would, indeed. Come on, then. We're off. He was impatient to be gone. Didis busied himself with a small apparatus that folded into a compact case, explaining that it was one that might prove useful. Aura left the room, but quickly returned. She, too, carried a small case, and she had donned a snug-fitting leather garment that covered her from neck to knees. What's this? demanded Carr. Surely Miss Aura does not intend to come with us. She never leaves my side, said Ditas proudly. Nothing doing, Carr stated emphatically. There'll be plenty of danger on this trip. We'll have no woman along, least of all your charming daughter. Mado was leaving everything to his friend, but he grinned in anticipation when he saw the look of anger on the girl's face. She stamped her little foot and faced Carr valiantly. See here, Mr. Carr Parker she stormed. I'm no weakling. I'm the daughter of my father, and where he goes, I go. You'll take me, or I'll never speak to you again. Carr flushed. He was accustomed to his own way in most things, and entirely unused to the ways of the gentler sex. He could have shaken the little vixen, but now she was standing before him, and there was something in those great blue eyes beside anger, something that set his heart pounding madly. All right, he agreed desperately. Have your own way. He turned on his heel and strode to the door, giving in to this slip of a girl. What a fool he was! But it would be great at that to have her along in the nomad. 
they found the public square deserted. The gilded dwellings hung with somber colors in mourning for Carly. Ora and Didas were very quiet and preoccupied when they entered the nomad. The five Isini of lamentation for the young prince had not yet passed. The two Europans were delighted with the appointments and mechanisms of the little vessel from Mars. They investigated every nook and cranny of its interior during their journey and were voluble in their praise of its inventor and builder. Neither had ever set foot in a space flyer, and each was seized with the longing to explore space with these two strangers from the inner planets. They would make a couple of good vagabonds, along with Mado and himself, Carr thought, as they expressed their feelings. But there was more serious business at hand. They were nearing Ganymede. "'Where are we land, Datis?' Mado called from the control cabin. "'Vlor Urdin. That is their chief city. I'll guide you to the location.' They took up their places at the ports and scanned the surface of the satellite as Mado dropped the ship into its atmosphere. A far different scene was presented than on Europa. The land was seamed and scarred, the colors of the foliage somber. Grays and browns predominated, and the jungle seemed impenetrable. A river swung into view, and its waters were black as the deepest night, its flow sluggish. A rank mist hung over the surface. "'The river of Charis!' exclaimed Didis. "'Follow it, Mado. No, the other direction. There. It leads directly to Vlor Urdin. By good chance they had entered the atmosphere at a point not far from their destination. In less than an hour, by the nomad's chronometer, the towers of Vlor Urdin were sighted. It was a larger city than Paladar, and of vastly different appearance. A hollow square of squat buildings enclosed the vast workshops and storage space of the fleet of war-vessels. Their huge spherical bulks rose from their cradles in tier after tier that stretched as far as the eye could reach, when the nomad had dropped to a level but slightly above the tips of the highest spires. The spires were everywhere, decorative towers at the corners of the squat buildings. Everything was black. The vessels of the fleet the squat buildings, and the spires of Vlor Urdin. Death was in the air. Rank vapor drifted in through the opened ports. There was silence in the city below them, and silence in the nomad. Ora shuddered and drew closer to him. Carr was aware of her nearness, and a lump rose in his throat. A horrible fear assailed him, fear for the safety of the dainty Europan at his side. He found her hand covered it protectingly with his own. End of chapter 6 Recording by Jason Dempsey Highland, New York